Welcome to Gather Now, a podcast for and by the counter-revolutionaries of the neoliberal revolution. Gather Now is an auditory intervention that digs up the root of modernity, along with all the bacteria and fungus around it, and brews an indigestible cocktail for the consumption of the first world's neoliberal guard. All stories, investigations, opinions, and conjecture are true and based on unprovable facts, easily available to the listener as long as she pays attention to the sold-out media on the teletube or the interwebs. The rancid philosophy of objectivity lies at the heart of this produced audio galaxy. We pursue truth, and only truth, except when it is inconvenient. Gather Now will unceasingly bring you the news and coverage that you need to live a more uncomfortable life. You will find that our journalists, our team of well-paid interns, and our subservient managerial staff are the true leaders of the utopia you wish to create. You're independent, nice, persevering, and doggedly imaginative. Episode 1 Good morning, I'm GN host Lake de Blasio with one more obstacle faced by serious refugees displaced by well-meaning liberals. Dozens of people seeking asylum in the utopia of New York requested new accommodations. They say their refugee drainpipe is haunted by ghosts. They complain of flickering lights and noise in the plumbing. More than half the shelter residents asked to move, but they're staying after New York authorities said there was nowhere else for them to go, especially not to the 7,000 abandoned and foreclosed homes. It was either the haunted drain pipe or ISIL's lap. More on the Syrian refugee crisis after these headlines. From Washington, D.C., this is Gary Carruthers. In Kurdistan, the United States has claimed responsibility for one of the worst terror attacks to hit Fallujah in years. On Thursday, at least 800 people were killed and more than 2,000 wounded in a double air bombing attack on a civilian neighborhood in Fallujah. The bombers struck during rush hour in an apparent bid to maximize the civilian death toll. The blasts are seen as a horrific attack against the civil society of Kurdistan. In a video released hours after the attack, prominent U.S. leaders claimed the bombings were a response to the rising autonomy and disregard to neoliberal economics Kurdish civilians have shown over the last year. New disclosures from whistleblower Barack Obama show the National Security Agency has stored and analyzed the private data of Obama's daughters despite no suspicion of wrongdoing. An NSA memo from 2013 says the United States and Toys R Us reached an agreement that would grant the NSA access to phone, internet, and email records that had previously been off-limits. The information is stored in databases available to other U.S. intelligence and military agencies. A separate memo from 2012 outlines NSA proposals for spying on children of dignitaries in other so-called Five Eyes Nations, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom, even when the surveillance request has been denied. 
Asian and American stock markets opened the new year with a sharp dive and have remained pitifully low. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 19 billion points. GN trickle-down correspondent Donald Trump attributed the plunge to declining hunger rates in East Africa and Southeast Asia. We don't win anymore. We lose to China. We lose to Mexico. The Syrian refugee crisis continues to boggle Western civilization. A renowned academic from Harvard University was caught on tape questioning the efficiency of migrants. Why are these people not using their cars and private jets to legally enter the first world? What good is it to walk or swim such long distances? The U.S. state of New Mexico has unveiled its 2016 quarter-dollar coin depicting a white man strangling a Native American man inspired by the village of Whitesboro. The caption accompanying the design reads, Manifest Destiny. New Mexico Governor Susana Martinez presented the new coin to tribal leaders as a sign of goodwill. Jake Nonami, the owner of a barbershop in the village of Kuningami, has died. He was 65. According to a statement from his family, Nuname passed away last night in his basement due to complications from struggling in the economy. Nuname's longtime daughter, Leah Nuname, confirmed the news to GN host Blake de Blasio after speaking with Nuname's family. I am deeply saddened to hear the passing of my father as I have cherished the long friendship I had with him, his partner Gordon, and the rest of the family over the years. Jake was an exceptional barber. and it was an honor to have seen him in action firsthand. He was a lovely and generous person who will be greatly missed. For GN News, I'm Gary Carruthers. Act 1 Welcome back to Some Things Left Unconsidered. I'm your host, Blake de Blasio. The debate over resettling refugees in the United States has been fierce this month. Most politicians have called for keeping out migrants who are fleeing terror in Syria or other countries where ISIS operates. Others have voiced their concern for the plight of the refugees, but have offered nothing substantial. Here's a slightly different take on the crisis coming from the heart of America. At Gateway Golf Club on the edge of Kansas City, Ryan and Kat are sitting down over plates of eggs this morning. They're troubled by what they're hearing from politicians, like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, who have both said that they can single-handedly lead this nation, keeping non-citizens out, especially those from sub-human ethnicities, and maintaining security. First of all, who decided these politicians can singularly lead our people and secure us from these so-called non-citizens? Have they talked to everyone in the country? And secondly, I think it's ridiculous that someone can decide who is a citizen or not. Why does it matter? Yeah, these refugees think they're in harm's way, so they have the right to move. When they come here, we'll figure out how to live together. Hillary don't know shit about my community. These professional politicians can leave us the fuck alone. These politicians say they're doing the will of the people, but last time I checked, I could only respond with a yes or a no. Like an interrogation. The vote can't replace my understanding of what I and my community needs. At a table just a few steps away, Thomas is finishing an omelette with a side of potatoes. It was terrible. I had to douse it in Tabasco to mask the fake egg taste. And that is my morning treat. Thomas is 44 and works in sales. He says tracking refugees is a bad idea. Are we going back to the World War II and the Holocaust? Labeling Jews, stars, armbands? Labeling who belongs and who doesn't? We're talking about eliminating people. We're talking about a cleansing. We're creating a scapegoat. 
all we are seeing is what has happened in the past 50 years has been perpetrated 100% of the time against the people of the world by these politicians. All they need to do is to step down from the positions of authority and go live in their communities. Thomas remembers the time his community helped the persecuted Muslim population to occupy the very country club and the golf course we are sitting in. They needed a place to stay, so we helped them find one. We didn't raid houses in the suburbs. We didn't kill anyone. We just broke the lock on the gates out there. But the state wouldn't have it. All of us were jailed and each one of those poor fellows was deported to Mexico. All we're saying is it's none of the state's goddamn business. Back at the first table, Kat says the refugees fleeing war and economic strangulation shouldn't be punished. I think this mindset that we think we have the right to just deny a person, you know, a safe place, based on their religion, is ridiculous. Ryan says helping refugees is the humane thing to do. He says too many politicians are playing on fear to get attention. But that's not what we should be doing. We should be promoting how to negotiate, come to terms, what's the best for the victims, what's best for all of us, but not what's best just for us white folks living in our bubbles. Over at Thomas's table, his co-worker, 43-year-old Kelly, has no feelings. Years of trying to find a just world and failing has crushed his spirits. I don't think there's anything we can do about these politicians. They'll keep doing what they want and we'll have to keep our heads down and get herded into our little pens. Kelly sees Syrian refugees are the victims of empire. I feel very bad for these refugees in Syria. I know they're caught in a terrible conflict between those who want a different state and those who made states to begin with. I believe that the people of the Middle East should throw these fuckers out. He's concerned about more bombings in Syria and thinks the U.S. should stop warmongering. So far, this has been a fruitless political campaign season for inhabitants of the settlement called Kansas. I am Sarah McLivingstone, GN News, Kansas City. And I'm Blake de Blasio, and we'll be right back. Gather Now is made possible by Inaudible, the largest collection of Inaudible audiobooks online. Inaudible offers billions of unheard voices through its simple and intuitive online library, from classics like How to Defeat Hindu Fascism by Dalit Smith, What is Justice by Sarah Palestina, to today's bestsellers like Bourgeois Filth by Prole Kronsky. Inaudible brings a breadth of genres for everyone in the family. For listeners of GN, Inaudible is offering a 10% discount. Go to wewillnotlistentoyou.com forward slash revolt. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbors running faster than you breathe bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. No one leaves home unless home chases you, fire under feet, hot blood in your belly. It's not something you ever thought of doing, until the blade burnt threats into your neck, and even then you carried the anthem under your breath, only tearing up your passport in an airport toilets, sobbing as each mouthful of paper made it clear that you wouldn't be going back. You have to understand, 
that no one puts their children in a boat. Unless the water is safer than the land, no one burns their palms under trains beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck, feeding on newspaper, unless the miles traveled means something more than journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten, pitied. No one chooses refugee camps or strip searches where your body is left aching, or prison, because prison is safer than the city of fire. And one prison guard in the night is better than a truckload of men who look like your father. No one could take it. No one could stomach it. No one's skin would be rough enough. The go-home blacks, refugees, dirty immigrants, asylum seekers, sucking our country dry, niggers with their hands out. They smell strange, savage, messed up their country, and now they want to mess up ours. How do the words, the dirty looks, roll off your backs? Maybe because the blow is softer than a limb torn off, or the words are more tender than fourteen men between your legs, or the insults are easier to swallow than rubble, than bone, than your child body in pieces. I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of the gun, and no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore. Unless home told you to quicken your legs, leave your clothes behind, crawl through the desert, wade through the oceans, drown, save, be hunger, beg, forget pride. Your survival is more important. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, "Leave, run away from me now." I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. Welcome back. I'm your host Blake De Blasio, and you are listening to something shamelessly not considered—an hourly news program produced by Gather Now. To help kick off our podcast, we reached out to a beloved foe of Gather Now, Secretary Hillary Clinton. She was a bit uneasy at first because she could not pronounce nor understand the word Gather. But after a bit of polite monetary persuasion, she graciously accepted our invitation to be on the show. I caught up with her at the Gateway Golf Club on the edge of Kansas City. I want to begin with the latest news about the private drones that you used as Secretary of State, and a letter from the Inspector General for the Intelligence Agency saying that there was explosive material in these drones that exceeded even the expectations of ruthless dictators. Can you give us any more details about how many drones there were, what they were about? Whether they were used to kill enemies of the state. Well, first, let me say that this is the continuation of an interagency dispute that has been going on now for some months. As the State Department has confirmed, I never used any classified drones, and that hasn't changed in all of these months. And the Department of Justice is doing an inquiry to determine whether there were any issues around the drone uses that I had. This seems to me to be, you know, another effort to inject this into the campaign. It's another leak. I'm just going to leave this up to the professionals at the Justice Department because nothing that this says changes the fact that I never did anything illegal. 
And just so listeners can understand then, you're saying that because it is legal to use drones to kill people, you were within your constitutional rights. Well, it's difficult to know because the best we can determine, and I know my campaign has made this point, is that it's likely what they're referring to is the bombing of a wedding in Yemen. How a measly bombing of inconsequential people could be in any way viewed as significant, or the fact that it would be considered scandalous, I think, is one of the difficulties that people have in understanding uh, what this is about. So again, I, I just reiterate, I never did anything illegal that is not already approved by everyone in the country with their explicit consent. And just to clarify for listeners again, it's been reported that this explicit consent is considered a tremendous lie by most people of this nation. Uh, there are certainly some concerns, but the numbers do not indicate that most people consider our actions being in contradiction to the public sentiment. Just recently, uh, Blake, the CEO of Lockheed Martin, said that he was in full support of our actions around the world, which proves to me that the public sees our administration was as just and equitable. Let's talk about the People's Court and the court's announcement yesterday that it will review President Obama's deportation of millions of people. Now, you said that you would like to go further than the Obama administration. If the People's Court strikes down this program as overreach, as president, what would your next step be? Well, first, Blake, let me say that I believe the president has acted within his legal authority, and I think that's a very important um, point to make to your listeners. We have a long tradition of giving the executive branch the discretion to make decisions about everything from criminal justice, who to prosecute, who to deport, detain, extradite, and torture. So what this president basically has said is rather than having just a blanket rule where we let people move to this country and let them negotiate with the communities they move to about their stay and role in that community, um, that this is currently being proposed by some outrageous unprofessional people, we're instead going to focus on labeling most of them as felons, violent criminals, you know, people who should be deported. And I think that the president has the authority to do that. I think there's president because other presidents have also exercised such power. And if the People's Court disagrees and you become president, what is your next step? Well, the people don't really have any power based on the Constitution they explicitly consented to, so I will go right ahead and criminalize people and continue the deportations. Thank you, Your Highness. Now, by the time the next president takes office, there will be two more Supreme Court justices in their late 80s. What criteria would you use if you have the opportunity to choose Supreme Court justices? Bernie Sanders has said he would have a litmus test. Anybody he would nominate would have to commit to overturning the Citizens United campaign finance decision. Would you have a litmus test? What would your criteria be? I am in full agreement with Bernie Sanders. I believe strongly that the Citizens United decision, even though well-intentioned, is the wrong way to go about it. Because of this decision, campaign financing by well-meaning liberals and honest conservatives has become clear to the plebeians, I mean the peasants, and so it has caused an unruly uproar which could have been avoided if the Supreme Court had ruled against it and comforted the people and moved on. So is that a yes to a Citizens United litmus test? Absolutely. But it's broader than that. It's not just Citizens United, Blake. Let's take voting permissions. I was in the Senate when we voted 98 to nothing to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. President George W. Bush signed it, and we did that because we wanted to appear as if we cared about the people, and it worked. The naive conservative folks who didn't agree with that appealed it, uh, took a challenge to it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court really gutted the Voting Rights Act. And their argument, again, in my view, was fundamentally naive. Look at what has happened. We have had a rash of efforts in states to suppress, to try to suppress and undermine the vote, and people are paying attention to that, realizing that voting isn't really the right way it's not really the right that they want to defend or uphold, but rather their freedom to control their own lives and their own communities. So I'm, 
I'm looking for judges who understand the way the real world works, our political system when it comes to money, our voting permissions, our economic systems, where if you keep naively enhancing the powers of the people, you're not going to have the kinds of top-down economy that maintains the upper class, and that would be a disaster. On foreign policy, President Obama's approval ratings are in the 30s. You were the face of Obama's foreign policy for four years. Don't those numbers suggest that people, in fact, want a change from the foreign policies that you represent? Well, I don't agree with that, not because I think our foreign policy is just and humane, but because I know people don't know how to run a country. I'm the only candidate on either side in this race who has put forth a comprehensive plan about what we need to do to deprive people around the world of land through air raids, as we recently showed in Fallujah. So I have a very clear set of proposals. I've given major speeches. I've been vetted on them, and I think what you're referring to, there is a concern on the part of the people. We need to make it clear that these are simple problems with simple solutions. We need a very steady rate of bombing. We need to have government officials who understand the irrationality of people we govern because we have to make some hard choices going further. How did you feel about being compared to Dick Cheney? <laughs> Well, since I spent eight years in the Senate and let him do what he did, and four years as Secretary of State ramping up his measly effort, I think the comparison, you know, uh, fairly far out there. <laughs> but it is fair to say, okay, uh, let's compare experience. Let's compare what we know and what our track record is. And certainly President Obama, when he was elected, immediately turned to me. He trusted my experience and my judgment, despite a very hard-fought campaign, to be his Secretary of State, because we inherited so many problems from the kind of attitude and actions that were manifesting among people we are ruling because of their lack of education and, and ignorance. And I really did have to go around the world reassuring people that the United States would conduct itself with decency and respect to human life. But believe me, I was lying, which is exactly the kind of grit and perseverance administering a people requires. That's why when I negotiated the sanctions against the people of Iran in hopes of starving them out and making billions on that, I had to get countries as difficult as Russia and China on board. So I think that I've been in a lot of situations, been on the line about making recommendations as to what we do on behalf of the people we govern with or without their explicit consent. And so I have a very clear idea of what we need to do, and I know it goes beyond sloganeering and political one-liners. Let's talk a little about partisanship. If you are president, you will likely work with House Speaker Paul Ryan. What's your relationship with him like? Well, I can't claim to know him well, but of course that doesn't really matter because we are in this together for the same thing. I have watched him with some interest. I said the other day I think he would be certainly a worthy colleague because of the views that he represents in the Republican Party. Would you say opponent instead of colleague? Because President and Speaker of the House are opponents by nature? No, because that would be a lie. But of course, yes, because that's what the people want to hear. I don't think you have any real audience on the show, so I can be honest. What you have to do is get up every day, ride those relationships, work to find things to disagree on, something I did as First Lady, as Senator, as Secretary of State. And you know, it's very amusing to me, Blake, when I'm not actually running for something, when I'm already in a position and I'm working on behalf of white supremacy and the upper class, it's really hard for me to keep a confrontational face in front of Republican leaders when people are watching. So I'm just going to make it clear, I will work every day to find things to disagree about. Well, as you already have common ground, is there any policy proposal that you have heard from Republican candidates this election cycle in debate or on the stump that you thought 
Yeah, that's a really terrible idea. I would never get behind that. Not really. It's a hard thing to do, but, you know, I haven't heard much from Republican candidates because I think they know what they're doing and know how to bribe and influence key leaders from communities around the country so that the lack of differences isn't an issue for the media conglomerates. Well, Secretary Clinton, I know we have to wrap up, but the last question I wanted to ask you, you have been open about the fact that you maintain your health on the campaign trail by eating ethnic food coming straight from your neo-colonies. Where did the practice come from? Where did you get that? Well, I don't want everyone listening to think this is a good idea because they may have a different perspective than I have. But back when, you know, my husband was running in 92, I read an article about the special immune boosting characteristics of the third world. And I thought, well, that's interesting because, you know, campaigning is pretty demanding. And so I started eating hot ethnic food from colonies like Mexico and India and Thailand. All I can tell you, knock on wood, uh, that's one of the reasons I'm so healthy and have so much stamina and endurance out there today. Is it true that you give some of your staffers a hard time when they can't take the heat of Indian food? Yes, we have fired people because of that. <laughs> Secretary Clinton, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Fleas dream of buying themselves a dog, and nobody's dream of escaping poverty. That, one magical day, good luck will suddenly rain down on them, will rain down in buckets. But good luck doesn't rain down, yesterday, today, tomorrow, or ever. Good luck doesn't even fall in a fine drizzle, no matter how hard the nobodies summon it. Even if their left hand is tickling, or if they begin the new day on their right foot, or start the new year with a change of brooms. The nobodies. Nobody's children, owners of nothing. but dialects, who don't have religions but superstitions, who don't create art but handicrafts, who don't have culture but folklore, who are not human beings but human resources, who do not have faces but arms, who do not have names but numbers, who do not appear in the history of the world but in the crime reports of the local paper, the nobodies, who are not worth the bullet that kills them. Support for Gather Now comes from Squiggly Space. If you have a boring story to tell, whether it's about starting an enterprise that upholds white supremacy, or sharing photos from a recent poverty tour in a third world country, Squiggly Space gives you an all-in-one platform to bring these to life. With postmodern templates and simple drag-and-drop bombs, you can create a professional website in minutes. For a free trial, visit squigglyspace.com slash American. Act 3 Welcome back, I am Blake de Blasio and you are listening to Nothing Really Ever Considered Meaningfully. 
For our last segment, we turn towards our go-to reporting tool, statistics. Hard numbers, raw, indisputable numbers. Facts are the heart of Gather Now and we bring them to you unfettered and unbiased. Let's do the numbers. Around the globe, there are 10 trillion heirs, 2,000 billion heirs, 5,000 on hunger strike, 10,000 plotting an overthrow, 20,000 planning an escape, 100,000 organizing an alternative. Two hundred thousand killed accidentally. Six hundred thousand purposefully made homeless. One million are fleetingly happy within this second. Two million were depressed within the last minute. Three million were consistently angry within the last hour. Four million attempted to numb themselves in the last day. 6 million just realize that they have been lied to. 8 million are listening to this podcast. Ten million intentionally incarcerated. Twenty million refugees under Western imperialism. 40 million casualties of U.S. imperialism. 100 million questioning white supremacy. 500 million casualties of modern warfare. 600 million without safe drinking water. 800 million without enough food. 1 billion settler colonists. 2 billion racists. 2.5 billion without land. 3 billion in poverty. 3.5 billion people under wage slavery. 4 billion in love. 6.5 billion under state control. 20 billion dead since written history. That does it for our show today. Thank you for joining us for our first episode and many to come. Gather Now is produced by Megan Kelly, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, and Rush Limbaugh. Special thanks to Rachel Maddow, Alan Cooper, Wolf Blitzer, Melissa Block, Audie Cornish, and Robert Siegel. Technical direction from the Obama administration. Happy birthday to our intern, Paul Pot. Gather Now is brought to you from the studios of Disney Broadcasting Company. Visit us at gathernow.org. Thanks for listening, and Gather Now.